This is Hannah Arendt Between Worlds, a podcast co-produced by the Goethe Institute and Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. I'm your host, Samantha Rose Hill. In 1963, Hannah Arendt published Eichmann in Jerusalem. It remains one of her most controversial works. When Arendt heard that Adolf Eichmann, Hitler's chief logician, had been captured in Argentina by agents of the Mossad and taken back to Israel to stand trial for crimes against humanity, she wrote to the New Yorker immediately and asked if she could cover the trial. She said that she wanted to see evil face-to-face in the flesh. But after the first day of proceedings, she was in shock. She wrote to her husband, Heinrich Bucher, and said, The whole damn thing is banal. You know the Woody Allen movie, Zelig? I think Eichmann is more like a Zelig figure. And what I mean by that is when you are to act like a vicious Nazi, that's what you do. When you are to act as a responsible person answering questions in a court, that's what you do. From her reportage on Eichmann in Jerusalem, she coined one of her most famous concepts, the banality of evil. Within the world of Orient studies, the banality of evil is often read as a contradiction to the concept of radical evil that Arendt comes to at the end of The Origins of Totalitarianism, which she had published in 1951. At the end of Origins, Arendt argues that radical evil had appeared on Earth with the Holocaust, stripping humans of their humanity, rendering them superfluous. So I wanted to talk with the philosopher Richard Bernstein about his work on Arendt and evil, Because unlike many readers, Richard Bernstein has done a lot of work to show how these two concepts, radical evil and the banality of evil, are actually complementary to one another. This talk about Arendt's theory of this, Arendt's theory of that, doesn't really understand, I think, that she was a person of thought trains. She followed certain thought trains that would sometimes interweave and connect And that's the way in which I think she thought about uh, evil today. So in this episode, we talk about the relationship between radical evil, the banality of evil, and how we can think about evil in our world today with Hannah Arendt now. Richard Bernstein is an American philosopher who teaches at the New School for Social Research in New York City. He has written extensively on American pragmatism, the Frankfurt School and political philosophy. He's the author of Why Read Hannah Arendt. Now, please join me in welcoming Dick Bernstein to Hannah Arendt Between Worlds.
it's a pleasure to be talking with you about Hannah Arendt. And I, there's so many things that I want to talk with you about evil, judgment, Arendt on Marx, what she got wrong, what she got right. But I want to start by just acknowledging that we're talking on March 15th, 2022. And we're in a kind of pivotal political moment. And one of the things that I have been thinking a lot about for the past two weeks is that Hannah Arendt's conception of radical evil and the banality of evil are compatible with one another. And that sent me to your work on radical evil. And I was just wondering if you could talk to us a bit about how you think about Arendt on evil today and what you've been thinking about for the past 20 days as Putin invaded Ukraine. Okay, uh, should I talk a little bit about the concept of radical evil? And uh, You can talk about whatever you want. <laughs> I still think what the few remarks that she makes about uh, radical evil and absolute evil in the origins are very relevant and very important. As we all know, she's most famous because of the concept of the banality of evil. And there is a famous letter, an exchange of letters that she heard with Gershom Scholem, in which she says something interesting towards the end, that the one topic that we could have really talked about is evil. And she says, I no longer think of evil as radical, only as extreme. Now, Many people interpret that, that somehow she rejected the concept of radical evil in the origins itself. I don't agree with that. I think that she's talking in two different registers. I mean, there she's talking systematically about what's going on in totalitarianism, and she's making this important point which she makes in the origins about making people superfluous. And she says, she confesses, and she actually reiterates this in an exchange with Jospers, I don't quite know what radical evil is, but it has to do with making human beings superfluous as human beings. Now, that's an extremely telling remark in the origins because... It's a major theme. It's a theme that goes all the way back to uh, thinking about refugees. But my view has always been that one of the things that Arendt took to be distinctive about totalitarianism, and particularly the Nazis, is that it wasn't the number of people they killed. It isn't the six million. It isn't massacres. It's the fact that in the end, that they systematically try to change human beings into something they're not. They systematically attempted to make them superfluous. It's got a lot of other rich themes to it. Now, if we come now to the banality of evil, then what there she's dealing with a very different phenomenon. She really is dealing with the evil of an individual person, Eichmann. There's a complex issue, which we can discuss, but I won't bring it up right now. Does she have Eichmann right? I think she doesn't quite have him right. But the main point that she's trying to make is that 
his, as uh, to paraphrase something she says, the deeds were monstrous, but the man was not a monster. And that makes sense in terms of the Eichmann trial, because clearly the prosecutors and people thought that if anybody could do these deeds, he must be a monster, he must be sadistic, he must be vicious, he must be anti-Semitic. And I think Arendt's great claim is that's simply not true, that he seemed to be more interested in advancing his career than in doing it. Now, the reason I think this is so important is because with that, Arendt opens up the issue that human beings can do evil even though they're relatively normal so that anybody can be guilty of the banality of evil and this. And that I, so in some of my writings about Arendt, I talk about, I make this distinction, the historical distinction about whether she had Eichmann absolutely right, and we can talk a little bit about whether that is the case, but the conceptual issue, what was she really trying to conceptually bring forth with the banality evil? And that concept strikes me as relevant today as it was when she wrote it. And the interpretation I give to the claim, I no longer speak about radical evil, I speak about evil being extreme, Arendt was extraordinarily sensitive to language. When she uses the term radical, she's referring to the Latin radix that has roots. And the point that she really wants to emphasize in later writings, it has no depth. It's on the surf, and it can spread like a virus, so that there is no depth to evil. It's there, and it can spread around. Okay, now, you wanted me to speak about the relevance. I think, in general, that people will speak about her theory of evil, her theory of radical evil. I think that her theory of banality of evil, I think these are, that's a misleading way of speaking about her. I don't think she had a theory of radical evil, and I don't think she had a theory of the banality of evil. I think what is really interesting, and this is something particularly if we read the Denker book, the other books, it was on her mind all the way through her life. I mean, after, I think, the war. And that what she was doing is over and over again rethinking, you know, the nuances of what evil is. And that I think you have to, to the end of her life. So this talk about Arendt's theory of this, Arendt's theory of that, doesn't really understand, I think, and I think you bring this out beautifully in your own book, that she was a person of thought trains. She followed certain thought trains that would sometimes interweave and connect, and that's the way in which I think she thought about uh, evil today. It has one significant consequence for thinking about the contemporary situation. I'm, I'm sure she would think of, I mean, she would... Uh, uh, be extremely critical of Putin. And I think she would have no hesitance in saying that what he's doing is evil. But strictly speaking, the concept of radical evil and the concept of banality of evil cannot be imposed upon this. And this, again, 
is, for me, characteristic of what I think is the, one of the deepest themes in Arendt, is that Arendt really did believe that with totalitarianism there was a break in tradition. And one of the things that that break in tradition meant, you couldn't simply rely on traditional categories to analyze situation. You had to rethink them. So I don't think that people who would automatically say, oh, this is an exemplification of radical evil, this is an example, that's very unorentian. I think that she would say that, look, we have to think exactly, and there are things that are cost important that are common to totalitarianism, but things that are different. And our, our task would be to try to illuminate what's distinctive about the evil that uh, he's engaged in. That's a long answer to a short question. It's, 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 a, it's a wonderful answer, and you are bringing up many different, you know, I think aspects of Arendt's work, perhaps first and foremost, importantly, the idea that Arendt's work is not a Procrustean frame through which to analyze our contemporary political situation. But we can think with Arendt and the way that she talks about radical evil, extreme evil, the banality of evil, and try to illuminate what it is that we are witnessing today. Arendt and that's what you would see as our task. Yes. You know, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, I think you probably noticed this in writing a biography, that there are certain terms that are favorite terms of a rent. And one term that can, keeps reappearing is perplexity. Perplexity. She talks about perplexity in connection with the rights of uh, the right to have rights. She speaks about, and she has a beautiful statement in the uh, essay on thinking and moral considerations where she says, How do you teach thinking? You teach thinking by trying to infect others with your own perplexities. And that's what I think Arendt really wanted to accomplish. She was not interested in Arendtians. She was not interested in followers. She certainly would have abhorred the idea that you could take her ideas and simply apply them to the situation. But it was a call to us, the readers, to face up to the perplexities which she's bringing forth. And there's something... And that includes the perplexities about evil. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that that's beautiful. And it, it's picking up on, I think, part of Arendt's, what, what drove Arendt to thinking from this place of curiosity and desire to understand. Perplexity comes, and you can correct me, perplexity comes from the Latin perplexus, which means to be entangled, to be confused, to have doubts. It's related to both the kind of the tanglements, but also the questioning. I think that's right on. And that to, to try to get the reader to share in that experience. Because if the reader shares in that experience, that is the stimulus for, th for th real thinking. So we have evil and perplexity, and Arendt thinks about evil, as you said, throughout the course of her life. She comes to it, I imagine, as a young student, first as a theological problem when she's yeah. studying in Berlin and then in Heidelberg with Jaspers. But evil is often entangled with thinking 
and trying to think about thinking and her work as well. So evil comes from a failure to think. What he lacked was the ability to imagine the world from the perspective of another. How do you think about the relationship? Or I'm going to go with entanglement now instead of the perplexity between evil and thinking throughout the body of Arendt's work. First, let me introduce an aside, which I yes, please. <laughs> I, I think is relevant. Um, we know about her marvelous correspondence, and one of the great correspondences is with Jospis, okay? I mean, the early days when they reunited in writing again, and Arendt, at that point, was talking about a crime which is greater than anything else, and Jospis chides her. He says, if you begin talking about that in that way, you're mystifying the concept. And she concedes that point. She makes the point that I don't really want to mystify the, the idea. And that's in his interchange, which I, I'm so perplexed that people don't always pick it up. He says, evil has to be understood in all its banality. Now, whether that entered her unconscious or was there, it's so clear that he's making the point shortly after the Second World War that she makes a course in the Eichmann book. Now, on the other issue, I mean, it is, I think, one of the more more, uh, exciting and provocative themes of the inability, I mean, to really have the imagination to see if, and I mean, that's one of the reasons she loves Kant. She loves the idea of, of the imagination traveling, and she certainly wants to, one of the threads, and when she says Eichmann can't, doesn't, was thoughtless, was that he really lacked the capacity to imagine, you know, what it was like for his victims. That's what he really lacked. I mean, there's a, I could make a reference to Heidegger here, but I think that Eichmann, he might have just been, he could just as well have been sh- shipping cattle. The fact that he was shipping human beings to their death is not something that really, and really seeing things from their perspective, really imagining is, is something. So that's one of the major strains, I think. And there, I think we we see we see the entanglement between radical evil and the banality of evil because in order to treat these human beings as objects, essentially, they had to be stripped of their humanity. And Arendt talks about this kind of three-step process of stripping human beings of their humanity, killing the juridical person I've always thought that one of the most brilliant things in Arendt Yes, the threefold distinction she makes in total uh, in total domination, killing the juridical, killing the moral, and then killing the uh, the uh, spontaneity. That fits with a thesis that I have about it, which I think is now more accepted when I first, than when I first was writing. And that's the the following: is that many people who begin with the human condition, think that 
the whole basis of it is a nostalgia for a Greek polis that never really existed. And I'm convinced that it was really the... I mean, after all, individuality and spontaneity are crucial for our conception of plurality. It was a systematic attempt to eliminate plurality that really then led her... I mean, she mentions it there, that led her to some of her deepest insights about action and politics. And that's why and that's why she argues Eichmann has to die at the end of Eichmann in Jerusalem. It was because yeah. he violated this fundamental I, principle of humanity, yeah, I, plurality. I'm I'm not entirely happy with that last passage. You're not? No, tell me tell me well, tell me why most because, most people go back to I mean, to it. I think it makes the ma- major theme that if you will that a certain people disappear, disappear from the earth, that's a violation of everything I most deeply believe in plurality, okay? Um, the reason I um, have some qualification is that um, it lends itself to an interpretation which I don't think is a correct one, but it lends itself to it, a vengeance, that you're that this is really a kind of vengeful reaction to what he he did, and the, indeed I think if I'm correct I may be misleading that that's the way Judith Butler reads it, you know. Now I don't think that's quite correct, but if you just read it out of context, it can sound like this is the this is the vengefulness of the victors, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I quite read it like that. I read it more as Arendt's intervention against the kind of you know, if the first step of the process of dehumanization is to kill the juridical yeah. man, how can the juridical system hold the person accountable? It seems to be a claim about the veracity of the the crime committed. I want to go back. So you you brought up the passage in Arendt's correspondence with Jaspers, which my broken into volume is on the other side of the room, and I'm tempted to get it because the passage you mentioned is on page 65, and <laughs> where <laughs> shortly after the war, if people want to go grab it, and then later in Arendt's correspondence with Heinrich Blücher, when she writes to him right after she arrives and the, after the first day of the trial. She writes to him her first impression and says that he's a clown in a glass cage and the whole thing is so damn banal. And then later in the Arendt Jaspers correspondence, Jaspers writes to Arendt and says, I hear Heinrich gave you the concept banality of evil um, and now you're the one taking the responsibility for it. So you said earlier that you don't think Arendt gets Eichmann quite right. What does what do, what doesn't she get right? Well, the point is this: I mean, as I say, I want to distinguish the conceptual English issue about whether the concept is an important concept for us today, and my answer is definitely yes, because we see this all the time. One of my favorite examples is Abu Ghraib in Iraq. Everybody immediately was very angry with the immediate officers who were making fun and so forth, et cetera. But what people did not point to 
is, is the administration, Bush and Rumfeld, who created the situation. They are guilty of the banality of evil in my own way. But let me get back to what you're trying to probe me on. Historically, look, there's an irony here because I think the evidence for a correction to Rent's view is her own description of what Eichmann did in Hungary. You know, I mean, after all, when Eichmann goes to Hungary, to Budapest, to organize the councils in 1944, everybody knows that the Germans are losing the war, including him, okay? And yet, as we also know, that uh, between March of 1944 and the fall, 400,000 people were sent to Auschwitz. Now, I don't see that as simply, and indeed, what he does know also is that he's doing this behind the back of Himmler. Now, that seems to me, in my category, is a bit more fanatical than just, I mean, I don't see it fits the picture of a person just, you know, advancing himself, doing his duty and so forth. There's something fanatical about why send all these people to their death when you know that it's not serving any function and when you know that one of the first times in your life you're violating what you take to be higher offices. I mean, the claim, well, that's what Hitler would want, that seems to be weak. I think that action is a little bit hard to fit with the banality of evil claim. You see, this is another kind of an aside. Do you know the Woody Allen movie, Zelig? Yes. Okay. I think Eichmann is more like a Zelig figure. And what I mean by that is when you are to act like a vicious Nazi, that's what you do. When you are to act as a responsible person answering questions in a court, that's what you do. And do. So his ability to take on different personas or different roles in different situations in a certain way a variation on the theme of the banality of evil, that's real banality. There's no depth to him. He would do whatever he, he was, whatever situation he was thrown into. What I do not accept is the thesis that some people have developed. In fact, I even myself suggested I agreed with it, but I don't agree with it, that he was being manipulative, that he knew what he was doing, that he was just playing a role. I don't think he was self-conscious. I think the Eichmann in the court is, is one Eichmann, and Eichmann, you know, um, among his Nazi friends in his Argentina is another Eichmann. And he didn't see any discontinuity. That's real banality. <laughs> well, I think, I think but that's Bernstein. That, that's not a word. <laughs> well, that's, I'm here for Bernstein <laughs> on our end. So how did you meet Hannah Arendt? The story of our meeting is a wonderful story and is a story that tells a great deal about Hannah Arendt. Uh, in the early 1970s, I had written a book called Praxis in Action, okay? At that point in my life, I was not interested in Hannah Arendt. 
at all. In fact, I was very critical of her. I thought that her interpretation of Marx and Hegel were outrageous, and I still <laughs> still do think that they're outrageous. But I published this book ultimately with the University of Pennsylvania. and But I had published an earlier book with Yale. And the editor at Yale was a bit annoyed that I didn't send the book to her. And so I asked, she said, send it, and I did. And she took the uh, upon herself to send it to a reader, even though I had made a contract already with University of Pennsylvania. The review I received is the most perverse review I have ever seen. It was clearly written by a German emigrant who was indignant that I would discuss Carnap and Dewey in the same book that I discussed Hegel. <laughs> and in 1970s, the number of people writing about Hegel you could count on one hand. And why didn't I cite this German source? Why didn't I cite that German author? And so in my mind, I asked, this was the question, who do I know who I think is an arrogant German emigre? It's Honor Rent. So I had imagined that she's my enemy. Okay? She was invited to give a lecture. It was actually the Lion Politics lecture at Haverford College in 1972. I didn't invite her. It was a colleague of mine. She said, I want to meet Richard Bernstein. And I had no idea what she wanted to meet, meet me for. Well, it turned out that my editor, a man by the name of Fred Week, was a personal friend of hers and had sent her my book. And she came to tell me how much she liked the book. I mean... I had, the mindset had to change completely because I thought he is an enemy and so forth. And as a matter of fact, that led to her. She wanted me to come to the new school in 1972. It didn't work out, but she became a great supporter. Something magical happened that night. We talked from 8 or we argued from 8 o'clock to 2 o'clock in the morning. And in one of the things I dedicated to her, I said it was erotic. I mean, in the sense that there was a kind of deep attraction. And at the same time, agonistic. We were fighting, arguing. And that was the beginning of our friendship. She asked me to then give a paper at the first conference that there ever was on auto rent that took place in Toronto in 1972. This is the part of the story that I like to tell. Arendt is a very distinguished person at this point. It's after the Eichmann book. Dick Bernstein is just starting out on his career. You know, this was of no significance for her. He says, I have just reread your book, and I find two reactions. Those who are very sympathetic and those who are extremely critical. And then she goes on to say, you know, Dick, all academic writing... Left, center, and right is conservative. Nobody wants to hear something which is new and different. <laughs> it's a beautiful, beautiful. I give that passage to all my PhD students, you know, because I, you know, young people are faced with this all the time that they are doing, and I think that she's right. And she, and she says, adds, I know the stick from my own experience, you know. Oh, so I think it's a beautiful statement about Hannah. I always like to tell the statement, uh, tell the story, because the one traditional view is that she's ar angry, uh, arrogant, and elitist. But here, 
she's completely open and reaches out to a young person who's got no status, who's not not famous, not part of a New York intellectuals, and that became, I mean, the friendship was wonderful. How has your relationship with her changed in the past 50 years? You knew her from 72 to 75, and yeah. you've carried her around in your thinking and teaching and carrying on the philosophy program at the New School for Social Research. How has she shifted in your imagination and thinking over the years? You want me to be honest? Yes, please. I'm even more impressed. You know, I can read her works. Right now I'm teaching. This is my last semester of teaching before I retire. Is and it I really? Thought, yeah. I want to, can I come to one of your classes? <laughs> it's on Zoom, so you can do it. But um, I thought I would teach two of the courses that people come to study with me, one on American pragmatism and one on honor or rent. And by the way, I have some fantastic students in this, this course. And you know, I mean, t today, as a matter of fact, just before, I'm reading on revolution. And I began seeing things about what she had to say about the Maroon, about rage, which I really hadn't deeply noticed before. So I'm always discovering something new. I mean, this doesn't mean, you know, you probably know that I wrote this very critical article on the social and the political. And since I gave it to my class, I thought I might reread it. I wrote that in the, at the end of the 80s, but I still think that she took a wrong turn here. I tried to defend her, but I think she overdrew the distinction and not to her advantage. Okay, so what does Arendt get outrageously wrong about Marx and Hegel? Uh, yes, I think when she wants to reduce them, in the last analysis, she wants to reduce them of moving from freedom to a philosophy of history and both subscribing to the idea of historical necessity, you know. Now, that's not uncommon in interpretations of Marx and Hegel, but it doesn't bring out the nuance. I mean, you know, Marx is not a person, nor, you know, I could talk either about one, but Marx is not a person who thinks that there's just a necessary thing that's rolling along and is going to bring out freedom. I mean, that's a caricature. So that, I think, is really wrong. I mean, it doesn't bring out, you know, what I would call the nuances in Marx. You see, let me do this in terms of critique of art. There's a wonderful statement that she makes in, in, in the interview that's in The Crisis of the Republic, Thoughts on Revolution, where she says, politics is not for everyone. It's like the publicness, but everyone has to have the opportunity, okay? Now, I think this is Bernstein on art. I don't think she took, thought that out. Because if you take that seriously, then you have to think hard about what are the material conditions that are required in order for people to engage in politics. And this is not just an abstract issue. It's a very concrete issue that we're facing today because, you know, we can speak the high language of the liberation and discourse, but we're just neglecting 
all those populations that really don't have the ability to do that. So you have to think more seriously about using the Marxist term, the material conditions that create the possibility that people can be political. And that I don't think Arendt did with full seriousness. No, she takes it for granted in her writing, I think, and kind of begins from an assumption that certain material conditions have been filled. You see, all of this comes back, I mean, to a theme that I think is where there's still a little bit of difference between us, is um, in order for politics in a, in a run sense, not to be empty or hypocritical, a word that she uses, then you have to think out what are the conditions, I mean, in terms of not just getting away from poverty, but education, discourse, to be able to enter the arena. I mean, because it strikes me that um, whether we think of digitist movement or the women's movement, and so a lot of it was concerned about how that class of people are excluded. Not only are they but legally, but they are really respected in a kind of political realm. So I'm a bit more radical than Arendt on this issue. <laughs> yeah, well, so am I. What do you think made Arendt turn away from those movements? Aside from, aside from the ideology part, which she was yeah. adverse to, do you think there was something else that made her kind of look away from those I questions? I would put it differently. Okay. There's another wonderful exchange with Jaspers, actually discussing the book of Rahul Vonnegut, okay? And in, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but Jaspers, in effect, says, Hannah, you exaggerate. And she answers back, exaggeration, exaggeration. You can't think without exaggerating. And besides, look at the world out there now. I am convinced that in this deep desire to restore the dignity of politics and to provide it as a critical standard, even today, that Arendt overstates the case, you know, that she exaggerates, and for good reason. Because, I mean, you know, outside of an Arendtian world, we just, people are blind to what she's talking about. Can you imagine a politician understanding, I mean, it may be lip service, but today understanding, well, it's got to do with opinion, exchange of opinion, discussing in the public reunion, dealing with peers. I mean, that's almost, and certainly, I mean, in the Trump world, that's, that it would, that's not politics. They would say, you know, politics is, politics is what she's always critical of, getting what you want. That's the, the idea of rulership that she's so critical. I just love those phrases when she says that politics is a world of no rule. Sometimes there are wonderful juxtapositions in rent. Bureaucracy is a rule of nobody. Yeah. Politics is a rule of no is no rule. And I mean that brings us back to Eichmann in a way. But I want to I want to circle back to the beginning of the conversation and ask what you, you know, thinking with Arendt today, what do you think has 
kind of fundamentally and irrevocably changed about our world since 1975. What are some of the elements that we need to be attentive to now? I think she would be horrified about what politics has become. You know, say we can think of just the American situation. I don't think she would be horrified by the new authoritarianism. She feared that. You know, I sometimes think that the most uh, devastating statement in the origins is the one that concludes this section on total domination, that totalitarian means will still, you know, even when the totalitarian regimes are gone, that they will still be appeal to people when they can't deal with the issues in the civilized world. We live in that world. I mean, you know, who would have expected that after, after World War II there would be massacres like Rwanda? Who would have expected that we would have not only had torture, but tried to justify torture? So she's right about that. And I think part of the power of Arendt, one of the reasons why I think that so many people are reading her is because um, you can see I mean, after all, her analysis of totalitarianism is an analysis of subterranean world tendencies in the modern world that crystallized, and they could crystallize again, okay? And that, I think, is um, one of the reasons that she's so appealing, because she's illuminating. Um, If I could just say one more thing about this, because I always like to counterbalance things. Um... I think that few people had a deeper understanding of the darkness of our times. Remember, the darkness of our times for a rent is not totalitarianism. It's not. It's when, it's when you know, there's no credibility, when truth is trivialized. I mean, when the, the essay that I always think could have been written yesterday is truth in politics, okay? So, um, you know, I see that as a, uh, a deep theme relevant for us today. I also think, again, in a Arendtian fashion and taking seriously um, what I t- call characteristic, I think she said, do not use my categories just as lay. I mean, think of the easy ways in which people speak about all kinds of things as being totalitarian. Um, and that... Everything is fascism now. Well, okay. And Arendt would object to that. I mean, the whole art of thinking is making distinctions. And, you know, we're not living... I mean, you, there are many, many tendencies in Putin and others and the authorities which are... You know, you can see their their affinity with totalitarianism, but we're not living in a world in which people are being sent to concentration camps, being murdered, the use of terror in quite that that sort of way. Nuance, nuance is what she calls for, and nuance recalls real thinking. <laughs> yes, I think that's you know, I there were there were two conversations I had that really, that I held in my imagination while I was writing. One was with Jerry Cohn. We met for lunch and he told me this story about Hannah Arendt 
you know, jumping up on her kitchen table and lifting her skirts and dancing and singing Bertolt Brecht in German, Three Penny Opera. And I loved that image of Arendt dancing, which also comes out of Gunther Anders' story. And then when we met at the new school shortly before the pandemic, you really brought to life the, use the word erotic earlier, in that kind of true platonic sense, you really brought, I could feel the erotic energy of Arendt through you. You told me the story about fighting about Karl Marx until the wee hours of the morning and imagining, you know, Arendt so engaged and lit up and vivacious. I mean, look, it's 50 years. That is my image that's with me t t today. Well, it's perfectly clear to you that she had special meaning as a person, in addition to her, you know, her writing and the thing, but just as a human being, open, encouraging, interested in ideas, not worried about barriers or who, what, what your status is. I think status had no significance for her. And that is a, a remarkable trait. I mean, you know, this is now my personal view, but it's also rents, that one of the greatest goods in this world is real friendship. And even though it's only a few years, that's what I had with Arendt, real friendship. And what is real friendship? Real friendship is where you can be open with the other, where you can say what you want, where you're not afraid of being criticized and so forth. You know, our idea is that you can discuss issues and still come away disagreeing and respecting each other. And I consider myself very fortunate. I've had this with a few other people, but I had it with Arendt. I mean, I've also had a relationship with, like that with Habermas, you know, which is uh, also a person I know from that very year. And the way you're with a person and you feel, and in the case of Jürgen, I know him and he's still alive we feel perfectly at home. When Arendt talks about being at home in the world and loving the world, you experience that in real... And I, I think what's so sad is I don't see much of that around today, that kind of friendship. There's another type of thing which I think is um, characteristic. I mean, Arendt is an older generation, but I consider myself very fortunate coming to, you might say, intellectual life and the love of the life of the mind after the Second World War. I mean, this is a wonderful period in which you felt that ideas counted, that your ideas could make a difference, you know, that so it was, uh, in fact, um, this, is a, this is really off the topic, but I will say it. Uh, no, two other close friends were Jacques Derrida, and Jürgen Habermas, there was a famous dinner party. I say it's famous because it's in both their biographies that took place here where we connected. And what I found so interesting, here's Habermas growing up as a person who was just being conscious of what the Nazis has done when he was a teenager. Here's uh, Derrida's growing up in Algeria, being thrown out of school. Here's Dick Bernstein growing up in Brooklyn. And yet at the profoundest level, I think our whole 
understanding of intellectual life was something we deeply shared. And certainly, that's something that I discovered in Hanorat. Do you think that it's possible to nourish that kind of intellectual friendship today? You know, you know th- th- let me go back to a theme which I haven't mentioned, which I really think is important. We talk about Arendt in terms of understanding totalitarian tendencies, authoritarianism, but this is another beautiful aspect of Arendt, of illumination, of the sense in which, you know, the real belief in new beginnings and in freedom, I think that's so, I think that's tremendously important in terms of young people today. Because it's so easy to become cynical. It's so easy to turn off from things. But the attitude, the belief, which I take very seriously, that we can still come together, you know, collectively act and make a difference in the world, is a beautiful Arendtian theme. You have to be careful not to sentimentalize it, to go over it, because after all, she thought the most... The revolutionary spirit was always being killed, but she did not believe that it was killed because of necessity. So in that interview on thoughts and revolution, she says, well, what do you think should be that form of government? That's where she talks about the councils and maybe in the next revolution this would happen. Maybe next time it would be there. So there's always the openness and the hope. Thank you, Dick Bernstein. Thank you. Okay, I enjoyed it, and I hope that this works. Hana Art Between Worlds is a co-production of the Goethe Institute and Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. It was produced and edited by Lisa Bartfei, music by Dylan Mattingly, and it was hosted by me, Samantha Rose Hill. We have more episodes for you on Thinking with Hannah Arendt now. Until next time. <laughs>